The sermon preached at St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church of Hancock, Minnesota, a member of the Wells, on May 25, 2014, based on Acts 17, verses 22-31. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Word of God, through which the Holy Spirit moves our hearts today, is the first lesson today, Acts chapter 17, verses 22-31. Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Dear friends in Christ, fellow saints washed clean in the blood of our risen Savior. Each year, two professors from Beloit College come out with what is called the Mindset List. It's a compilation of values that affect or that determine the the mindset or worldview of the incoming college freshmen. It's often a mixture of both insight and humor, and it it brings out how the way we think about terms and words can change from generation to generation, that the professors, the older generation, need to be aware that when they use some of these words or terms, the, the younger generation may not be thinking the same thing they are. For example, one of the items on the list is that a tablet is no longer something that you take in the morning. You can think about that and see how with the pills and tablets that you take when we get older, it's very different than the tablet that the younger person brings to class and presses on the screen. Now, in 2012, one item on this list would have raised our concerns. They said that for incoming college freshmen, the biblical source of words or terms like the forbidden fruit, 
the writing on the wall, Good Samaritan, and the Promised Land were no longer known to most of them. You know, in previous generations, even the unchurched and the unbeliever had some idea that those terms came from the Bible. They might have even been able to tell you bits and pieces from those Bible stories because so many people had a smattering of Sunday school in their days growing up or they heard it from their friends or others in their culture. But more and more, we are becoming a country that is biblically illiterate. What a challenge to bring Jesus to those who have no Bible background at all. But God wants them to know. For God wants all to know him. And this was the challenge facing Paul as he spoke before the Areopagus in Athens, Greece. These were the learned people of his day. They were in tune with the current philosophies and the ways of thinking. But they would not have been familiar with the writings of Hebrew prophets from centuries ago, what we now call the Old Testament. Why would they be concerned about those writings? They weren't Jewish. And so as Paul speaks before these men of the Areopagus, he has to meet them where they're at in order to bring them to where God wants them to be. And so he doesn't use the usual sermon, you might say, that he would have presented at a synagogue. But you see, that was Paul's normal way of doing his mission work. He would come to a new city and go to the synagogue there and and speak, first of all, to the, the Jewish listeners. And then he would use the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. He would point out how God had prepared the nation of Israel so that the Messiah would come through the family line of King David. And he would quote Old Testament prophecies to show that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled them, even though the the people of Jerusalem had rejected him. But all that kind of stuff was unknown to these men of the Areopagus. So Paul had to meet them where they were at in order to bring them to where God wanted them to be. For God wants all to know him. Whether they are churched or unchurched, whether they have a Bible background or not, God wants all to know him. And that's the theme here this morning. He wants all to know him as the Lord of creation, as the giver of all that's good, and especially as the Savior judge. Now, just because the people of Athens did not know the Hebrew Scriptures, didn't mean they were unreligious. In fact, they were very concerned about religious stuff. And their city was filled with religiousness. They had altars and shrines, temples and statues. They worshipped Zeus and Athena, Poseidon and Hades and the other gods of Mount Olympus. They honored the fabled heroes of old like legendary Hercules. They wanted to make sure all their bases were covered. They even had an idol to the unknown God. Did maybe their their consciences have a little bit of a a twicking there? Some some guilt and fear rubbing at them that maybe, maybe even with all this religiousness, something was missing? Could all this religious activity really make everything right for them? Especially these people of the Areopagus, they realized that their myths and legends 
didn't really describe the gods in the, a real kind of way that, that they were myths and legends, not, not real history. And yet, they also knew there had to be something behind it all, something. And so Paul says to them, this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Yes, there is such a God behind all those myths. There is a God above all those other so-called gods, the one true God who created all things who rules over all things, for he is the Lord of creation. Now, although many today try to reason away the Lord of creation behind evolution, the men of the Areopagus realized that things just don't pop into existence. That things have a beginning, and therefore there had to be someone before everything, someone from eternity, someone to start it all. Every house has a builder. And if something like a house has a builder, how much more is something so complex as a living organism, like our bodies? And if something as small as a watch has a maker, how much more is something as immense as the galaxy? But maybe the modern mind would like to say, well, but science now is able to date all those things and they they determine that so much of what they dig up is millions of years old. Doesn't that prove that evolution must be more correct in the Bible? But, But think back to what God does say about creation. He makes it clear that when he says six days, those are six regular days with an evening and a morning. But then notice when he creates Adam and Eve. They are mature, adult human beings, even though they're just a day old. And also when he created the stars on day four, they were visible from the earth because God created not only the stars, but also the light between the earth and the stars so that you could see them. Trees were not saplings, they were full-grown trees, and all of creation was created mature. So also couldn't the rocks and the strata and the fossils and the, the coal and whatever else they dig up been created in such a way that they looked like they had been there for a very long time? He is the Lord of creation. And since he is the Lord of creation, that means you and I are accountable to him. Now this is one of the key things that drives evolution is that if we evolve, then we're not accountable to some higher being. But we are creatures made by God. We are accountable to him. He is the one who sets the standards, not us. And how can we ever measure up? For everything we have comes from him. There's nothing that we can give him, nothing that we can repay him, nothing that we can make up for that he hasn't already given to us in the first place. Even stuff as basic as life and breath are gracious gifts from him. How can we ever measure up? Might the conscience of those first hearers heard about the Lord of creation started wondering those things. How 
could I ever measure up? Did guilt and fear whisper in their ears? How are you going to stand before such a God like this? Who has power over all things, especially if he is as petty and uh, as as, uh, vindictive as the gods of your myths. But notice how Paul here brings out as well that the Lord of creation is not just the powerful God, He's also the gracious God. He is the giver of all that's good. So yes, he does indeed have our best interest at heart. Look at how he provides and takes care of everything. Paul says, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Yes, dear friends, everything is in the hands of our God. He is the giver of all that's good. From the very beginning, he has had all of history planned out. The appointed times and the set boundaries, the rise and fall of nations, all is under his control. He governs everything. And what's more, he who is the giver of all that's good wants us to find him. He wants us to reach out and know him. Our inborn natural sinfulness, though, makes this reaching out like groping in the dark, like blindly grasping at something that we are unable to, to find. But our inability here does not nullify God's earnest desire for us to find him. He is the giver of all that's good. And what's more, if he does have everything planned out, Might he not also have planned out some way to bring us to him? For in him we live and move and have our being. Everything is under his control. We are his offspring. Would he abandon us? Now you, dear friends, you already know the answer to those questions. But as Paul was speaking Those were the thoughts that that may have been going through the minds of those first listeners as Paul tries to lead them to see how much we need the person that he is going to be talking about later or that he wants to talk about later. Yes, the Lord of creation is also the giver of all that's good. And what is the greatest good that he might give to us? As I said, we already know the answer And yet, how often we fail to put that knowledge into practice. We know that God is the giver of all that's good, and yet yet we worry. We fear possible misfortunes. But think about it. If God has control of all of history, even the rise and fall of nations, can't he guard and protect you and me? Yet we worry. And even worse, rather than trusting in the giver of all that's good, trusting him first and foremost and completely, so often we first run after what human skill and ingenuity might be able to do for us. We might not bow down to images made of gold, silver, or stone, but how often don't we run after things made out of plastic, silicon, Uh, Aluminum, steel, things driven by oil, gas, electricity. Building our hopes for happiness and prosperity on the advancement of technology. 
or we think that if, if the medicine or the doctor can cure it, then life would be so much better if it could just cure what ails us. Or our priorities are set by the paycheck we get or the, the balance in, at the bank. And then what happens when these things fail? And they do all eventually fail. When those things fail, then we feel that worry and that fear shaking us because we've been trusting those things rather than trusting the giver of all that's good. And that day of reckoning, that day of judgment is coming. That's the last point we hear Paul making in the text here. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So repent. Repent before it's too late. Turn from evil. Turn to the Lord. For that day of judgment has already been set. In fact, the Lord God has already appointed the person who will do the judging, the man, Jesus Christ. But Paul hasn't mentioned that yet, as you may well have noticed. God has appointed that man who will judge in complete justice and righteousness. And as those first hearers were listening, were they thinking, who is this man? How might we stand before him? Is there hope for us in this man? Yes, those are the questions that should have been burning in the hearts of those first hearers. But instead, they cut Paul off. They tell him, oh, we've heard enough. You maybe can come back later if we want to hear more from you, maybe. How might Paul have finished this sermon? This man is Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God in whom all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. For God sent him, born of a woman, to redeem us from our sins. And so he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. For by his death, he reconciled the world to God. God proved this by raising him from the dead, exalting him above all. His resurrection is God's verdict that declares guilty sinners forgiven. And this man, Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, who died and rose, has now ascended and reigns over all for the good of his people. And on that day appointed, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So believe in him as your Savior from sin and death. You see, Jesus is the Savior judge. And so, dear friends, set your hearts on Jesus. For see, with our hearts set on Jesus, then we will stand in the judgment. Oh, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. For faith clings to Jesus and pleads only his righteousness, not ours. With your hearts set on Jesus, live each day waiting for his return. For you know that the one who is coming to judge is the one who has already bled and died for you. 
the judge, is your Savior. What hope and peace that gives us. What a God for you and me and all people to know. Amen.